Where'd you get those lyrics, man? I'd like the living Bible or something. That was pretty good. I like that. That's how I picture it. Hey, um, I've got uh, one one quick announcement before we get rolling here this morning, or as I get rolling. But um, we're having our somewhat not so annual, every so often, kindred night at knots. I mean, it started out to be kind of an annual thing. How many of you were here in 1985 when we had the first one? What's so funny? That's when it was. And then the last one was in, how many of you were here in 1987 when we had that one? Raise your hand. Oh, good. How many of you were here in 1992? This is just a mic test for a second. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah, glad to see it. Good. Man. Anyway, we're having our not-so-annual every other time, but whenever we get around to it, uh, not, night at Knott's Berry Farm, it's a, an uh, outreach. And uh, we've got the flyers put together. And as we pass them out, you'll take a look. All the, all the information that you need is on the flyer. Um, a friend of mine, Doug Smith, who has played 15 years. Pardon me? Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. And thank you very much. And if you remember what I told you, I said I was going to give you a clue. And then, or cue, I mean. And then you were going to ask me that question. Chuck, remember what it was? I said, just say, Chuck, how much is it? And then you were supposed to say, man, that's a great deal. Man, you know, I'm... Any other volunteers next week for helping me out of the audience? I mean, it's like, man, a life. Anyway, uh, Doug Smith is going to be speaking. Uh, Doug's been with the Rams for uh, 15, well, he's going into his 15th season. And um, the reason that there's no price on here is because, now, see, you don't remember the last time, huh? Well, the same reason as the last time. But since that was five years ago, and most of us can't remember last week, uh, is that uh, we don't want a price on here because what we'll do is you can hand these to a guest. And the way this thing works is, if you've ever been, how many have ever been to the, the Gold Rush camp at Knott's Berry Farm? Okay, good. Well, then you know what it is. For those of you who haven't, it's across the street from the park. It's um, where Independence Hall is. They've got a, a park area over there. Uh, it's an outdoor western type theme with a stage and kind of circle in the wagons around type of deal. Anyway, they have, uh, the dinner will be for uh, Mrs. Knott's chicken dinner, whatever that is, with chicken and prob- probably chicken. And, uh, and some other stuff that goes with it, and, you know, the filler type things. And, uh, and it's $12 a person, and if you bring a guest, wait a minute, wait, I didn't, I didn't say anything yet, jeez. The best part's coming. And $6 for guests. Thank you. Well, we thought so. And, uh, and the reason we want to do this, we want to encourage, encourage you, if it, since it is an outreach, to bring people to hear what the Lord has done in an individual's life. And uh, I've heard Doug speak before, and he's very articulate uh, as far as what he believes and why he believes what he believes. And it's a very non-threatening environment, uh, casual Western-type genes, things like that. And we also have Adam Speth, who is a um, renowned banjo and guitarist. Uh, who will be doing all the, the music up front and the priority uh, quartet will also be singing a few songs. So it's going to be a great night. And it is um, Monday night, May 4th. We'll have the uh, flyers for you available. Are we passing those out or what are we doing? Okay, we'll pass them out. Can you do that so that it doesn't interrupt what I do because I want their undivided attention or I'll start smacking people around. And uh, anyway, so we're going to hand, we'll have these available for you. So give these to a friend. Uh, tickets will go on sale um, April uh, 5th. April 5th, tickets will go on sale. So be thinking about between now and then who you want to invite, who you've been thinking about inviting. And, uh, you know, talk, talk about tying in with the missions conference. I mean, that's our whole purpose in being here is to let as many people that we can know how much God really loves them. And that's what this is all about. So it'll be fun. Okay, now let's get back into uh, why we're here, and that is to for me to make my weekly retractions and apologies for offending people the previous week. And uh, so it has been brought to my attention that, uh, that I may have offended uh, some of you last week. And any time that this occurs, which is usually weekly, I may add, uh, there are a few questions that I have to ask uh, that go through my mind. The first question I always ask of myself, why did I offend them again? And so that, that's kind of an introspective type thing. I begin to ask myself that. Why did I offend them? And then I've got to ask, well, did I offend them because I was vindictive? I was attacking? Did I offend them because maybe a little bit of what I've said was true? Um, 
why, you know, why did I offend him? See, that, now that's a personal question. I've got to deal with that, and I deal with it every week, believe me. And, uh, and, I, and I haven't got And every week the answer is different, by the way. Uh, so now the question that I want you to ask yourself is this. Why was I offended? Now that's your question that you must ask of yourself. Was I offended because he was attacking me personally? Was I offended because what he said had an element of truth and it bothered me so much that it's either I have to deal with that or I'd rather just feel that he offended me? Um, was I offended because, well, what he said was true, but the guy's just so blunt. I wish he'd leave that locker room stuff in the locker room. You know, that could be, amen. We'll listen to you, <laughs> Mr. I'm so sensitive and sweet. <laughs> amen. And, uh, you know, so that, that's a question that you have to ask yourself. And, uh, and I can't answer that, but you can answer that. And typically, I know when I'm offended, there's a, there's a little element of a lot of things that are involved. And generally, I get offended, particularly when there's an element of truth that I have to address in my life. Then it becomes really offensive, and i got to decide what to do about it. But anyway, here's my favorite story, and it leads into this. But basically, you always need a good lead into a good story. So the story goes something like this. And it kind of ties in with everything that we're talking about. And, and, and we'll deal a little bit more specifically with some things as we go through this morning. But... The story is that there's a lion, and he wakes up one morning in the jungle, and he decides to go about the business of making sure that everybody in the jungle, particularly his fellow animals, are aware of who is the king of the forest. So he goes through the jungle, and he finds the first beast of the jungle was the rhinoceros. And he says to him, Mr. Rhinoceros, who is the baddest dude in all of the jungle, keeping with the lyrics of the song. Who is the baddest dude in all the jungle? And the rhinoceros thinks for a moment, and he says to the lion, Mr. Lion, you most certainly are the baddest dude in all the jungle. And the lion roars with approval, and he walks away, kind of strutting and stuff. So he goes up to the cheetah, he says, hey, little guy, who is the baddest dude in all the jungle? And the cheetah obviously says, Mr. Lion, course you are, sir. And the lion roars with approval. And he goes strutting away. Then he goes up to the elephant. And he looks at the elephant and he says, Mr. Elephant, who is the king of the jungle? The baddest, most powerful beast in all the forest. The elephant looks down at him. Thinks it over. Decides to beat him up. So he picks him up with his trunk. He slams him off the ground. Boom, boom, boom. Kicks him a couple of times. Picks him up, hits him against a tree. Boom. Then picks him up one last final time and throws him out in the middle of a lake. So the lion is a little battered, a little bruised after this particular experience. And he comes crawling out of the water. And he looks up at the elephant and he says, Listen, you, just because you don't know the answer, that's no reason to get so upset. <laughs> Well, I think it makes my point. Anyway. The last time that we got together, I asked what, was, what I thought at, at first glance was a very simple question, and that bothered many of you, and the answers that I heard bothered me. And that is that we become very subjective when this question is asked. And that's very simply this. Is the Bible a reliable and trustworthy source of information? And if so, how do you know for certain that it is one way or the other? If you say it is not, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe it's reliable, I don't believe it's trustworthy, I don't believe it's accurate, very good. You're entitled to that opinion. My only question for you is, how can you know for certain that that's true? Now, for those who say, oh, I believe the Bible, oh, yeah, grew up believing it, oh, yeah, believe it's trustworthy, believe it's reliable, believe it's authoritative, I believe whatever it says, I believe it's, you know, that it's, that's it. Well, how do you know? And I just thought it was just a very simple question to ask since we spend millions and millions of dollars every year and send missionaries all over the world and we have a budget that's over a million dollars for the express purpose of sending people out into the world to take this book and translate it into their local language so that they understand what it has to say. Now, I don't think that's too much to ask before we'd endeavor to do such a thing. Is this trustworthy or isn't it? 
And if it isn't, how stupid it is for us to spend that much money and all the effort and have people go and suffer the way that they do and, and exert such energy for something that you can't trust or depend anyway. Now, is that fair? I think it's a fair question. A good question. Thank you very much. Now, the question is, do we have any good answers? And we became very subjective as we answered the question. Now, some of us are offended by that. And you know what I say? Good. I'm glad you're offended by that. I hope you're offended by that. How dare him trust? I mean, how dare him question me as far as whether I know that the Bible is reliable, trustworthy? Well, why are you offended? Because I don't have an answer. Because I just, I grew up in a home and we always believed that. And no one really took time to explain why. We just believed it. So then we get out in the real world. And that's the thing that bothers me too. Is why aren't more of you coming across people who have objections to the reliability of this book? That bothers me. Because what it means to me is you're not talking to anybody who has any questions that they want to ask. Which may have to do with the fact that we don't really deal with people who believe differently than we do. Who do we hang around? All the people who go to church with us. All of our, quote, Christian friends. We don't want to talk to anybody else because it's offensive. We don't want to offend anybody. So, so we're so worried about offending people that we don't share the truth. So what I like is being out in the real world dealing with real people who've got questions about a God, whether he whether exists or not, and want us to know what's going on. I like talking to people like that. And I like to be able to answer their questions. I like to be able to say, you know what? That's a great question because I never really believed this either. I don't believe this is reliable. I never believed it was accurate. But let me tell you why now I do. See, when you don't have that question in your mind or you're not struggling with that, i got to ask you a question. You'd be offended all you want. I don't really care. How many people are you dealing with or talking to that have questions that you need to answer? Man, I sure hate to be the one to be bringing these questions up every week. I would hope you run into these questions on a weekly basis with people that you're talking to. And that you come here saying, man, I got the greatest question asked me this week, and I wasn't sure how to answer it. And I told him, I want to check into that and get back to you. Hey, can you help us? Sure. That's why we're here, right? So the question, it goes along, and, and what I want to do is just ask you this very simple question, and let me, let me phrase it as carefully as I can. Without using the Bible to prove the reliability of the Bible... How can you be certain the Bible is a reliable source of information? Let's not go through circular reasoning and let's not share with people and say, well, it says this in the Bible. And they say, I don't believe the Bible. And you say, well, but it says it in the Bible. And say, well, they go, I don't care what it says in the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. So you're having just a conversation with somebody at the office. Just stretch this for a moment if you've never done it. You're having this conversation with somebody at the office and they say to you, you know what? I don't really believe. I don't really believe the Bible. I mean, everything you tell me about Jesus is in the Bible. Everything you tell me about what Jesus did is in the Bible. I mean, everything you tell me is from the Bible. And guess what? I don't believe anything that's in the Bible. So as a result, since I don't believe the Bible and the source, I'm not going to believe anything you say that came from it because it just isn't true to me. All right? So you're sitting around, you're having this conversation. Now let me ask you something. Hopefully you paid attention a little bit last week because that's the purpose of this. All right? So now you go, hey, uh, boy, you know what? Let me ask you this. How do you believe anything that you read, whether it's reliable or true? It's a non-threatening. That's a question that goes back to them, and it causes them to think, and it's something they have to answer. All right? How do you believe, like with the illustration we used, how do you believe the Civil War actually took place? Were you there? No. Okay. Do you believe that it exists, that it took place, that it was a fact in history? Yes. Okay. How do you believe the Holocaust took place? People try to not deny its reality, its existence, that it actually took place in, in a moment in history. Were you there? No. Do you believe it's true? Yes. Good. Well, let me ask you something. How do you know? And when they're stumped, then you just come back and say, you know what? The reason I believe the Bible is historically accurate is the same reason I believe the Civil War actually took place. And the same reason I believe that the Holocaust is true. And that is very simply this. The Bible passes the tests of historicity that are used for all historical documents. 
And when they look at you and go, well, what tests are those? Then you could say, the first test is the bibliographical test. And they go, whoa. See, now right away, they begin to realize that you know something they don't know. Isn't that true? I mean, how many of you have, you know, daily conversations talking about the bibliographical test of, of documents of history? Not many of us. Okay, so you say that, now I'm stuck. I've got to listen to you because apparently you know what you're talking about. Apparently. All right, now the question is, what is a bibliographical test? What is it? See, now, see, the problem is you can't just say, hey, well, let's pass a bibliographical test. And then they go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm very familiar with that test. Um, and they go, well, what is that? What are you going to say? It is the test that... Okay, number of manuscripts exist from what? Okay, from the original time, it's, it's, it's basically textual transmission. From the original time, the original documents were, were, were inked to the time of the copies of those documents. How many of the copies exist of the originals and what period of time has passed between the original writings and the time that the copies were written? All right, you follow that? Because basically what it's doing is it's eliminating anyone from saying, well, there was errors between the original writings and the manuscripts because of the length of time that was in between, how much time passed. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found, was such a tremendous archaeological discovery. Because what they did was they, they lessened the amount of time from the originals to the dated uh, manuscripts by over a thousand years. And so the closer in time that you can have a copy that's written from the original autograph, for example, the book of Isaiah was written 800 years before Christ. Now in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found manuscript evidence that goes back to 200 years B.C., which cuts that time uh, from the originals to the, the, the copy by to 600 years. From the originally purported 1,400 years or 1,600 years. So the closer you get to the original date with the copies, the more reliable that text is. All right? That's the bibliographical test. All right? Now, just because the original, just because the copies are now reliable, now the next question becomes, well, so what? How about the information inside of it? How reliable is that? We know what the copies, uh, the copies are exactly what the originals purported them to be. But now, what about the information in the originals? Then we go to the second test. The second test is what? Okay, the internal evidence test, the information found within that particular writing. And somebody else had made a good point. And that is validated by what? Eyewitnesses to the event. How do you know the Civil War took place? Because here's the original writings. Here's copies of a diary, for example. Here's writings that have, have, uh, have uh, since followed that subsequent to the original writings. And now they are documented within that internal evidence by eyewitnesses who had been there and have seen it. It's very important. Because since you and I were not there, what eyewitness reporting does is it eliminates our presuppositions about whether we believe something to be true or not. See, it's much more valid for me to say, I had not seen the Holocaust, I have not been to a Civil War battle. But those who have been there have written this, and the more their eyewitnesses, the, the greater number of eyewitnesses, the more reliable the evidence is. You follow that? The greater number of eyewitnesses, the more reliable the evidence is because it eliminates one eyewitness from seeing something in a distorted manner. And the illustration I gave is, guy drives us down the street with a woman in his truck, and somebody sees it and says, oh, so-and-so has some woman in his truck. Somebody else that sees it, and ten other people say, well, that woman is his wife. The presupposition is he's messing around, and the reality and the fact is, based on the eyewitnesses who know the situation, it says, no, that's not true. So the greater number of eyewitnesses to event eliminates any such uh, misinterpretation of the facts. So you've got the bibliographical test, which is the transmission, textual transmission from the originals to the copies. Now you've got the internal evidence, which has to do with eyewitnesses. And the Bible is filled with eyewitness accounts. Over and over and over and over again. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 it says this, that over 500 people saw Jesus Christ after the resurrection. That's why his disciples who saw him died for him. They all ran away at the cross. But when he rose from the dead, 
And Thomas said it best for every one of us. And he said, my Lord and my God. Why would they have died if they knew it was a lie? It wasn't a lie. And the eyewitnesses report back to us that, hey, I was there. I saw it firsthand. Now, you can doubt it. You can say anything you want to say. And you can have all the presuppositions that you want. But you're foolish if you don't look at the facts. And the facts are very simply this. I was there. Were you? Were you? For me to say I deny the Civil War, I deny slavery, I, de I deny the Holocaust, it's, it's absolutely foolish for me to do that when eyewitnesses will come and say, I was there, were you? Now, I may not want to believe it because I don't want to believe that, that man could be so cruel to man. And I may have all kinds of reasons why I don't want to believe it, but that doesn't take away from the facts that it happened. I may not want to believe God exists, and that's, that's perfectly fine for me to have that choice. But it can't take away from the facts and the evidence. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But you do so to your own hurt if you don't examine the facts. So that's the internal evidence. Now, what other evidence exists? What other test is there? Okay, external test. What, what can we use as external test? What is there? What's available to us outside of the writings themselves? Because obviously, if you have someone... Like, like a friend of mine shared, you have someone who gives him a book that says, we don't believe that Paul was a Jew, we don't believe that he was an apostle, we don't believe that anything that the Bible says about him. And so they use its text to prove what their point is. So they take chapter 2 to prove chapter 6, and chapter 6 to prove chapter 1. Well, so what? That's, that, that has to still pass the bibliographical test. It has to still pass the internal evidence test. Whether somebody writes a book saying that slavery never happened in this country doesn't matter because we need to examine the facts that are stated within the book against the external evidence that exists to either support it or deny it. External evidence. What's some of the greatest external evidence that you have in support of the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible? Archaeological discoveries are perhaps the greatest external evidence test to support that this book is trustworthy. Every archaeological discovery that has been found has concluded quite simply, uh, without exaggeration or stretching anything, that what the Bible says is true. Alright? What else? Okay, here. We've got a secular historian whose name is Josephus, one of the noted historians of all time who collaborates, even though the guy is not a Christian, he's a Jew, but he still collaborates exactly with the, with the internal evidences of the, of the Scripture. Interesting. You've got somebody who's saying, well, I agree that what's being said is true. I don't agree what's being said is true. Do you follow that? You know what I'm saying? I agree that that's true, but I don't agree that it's true. Because I don't want to agree with that it's true and I don't want to believe that it's true because that forces me to have to deal with some things in my life that I'd rather not at this point. So you've got secular historians, uh, you've got archaeological discoveries, and here's a, here's a great one. How about predictive prophecy? How about the fact that here it is in Psalm 22, written you know almost a thousand years before Christ, we see a picture of the crucifixion, and no one knew what the crucifixion was. A thousand years before, with exact accuracy, we see the accuracy of predictive prophecy that occurs thousands of years before the actual date has occurred. The Bible is trustworthy. It's reliable. It's accurate. You can, you can bet your life on it, which is exactly what we do. Not only do you bet your life, but you bet your eternity on it as well. You better be sure... <laughs> that this book is right. Because everything you believe is based on whether this is authentic or not. Everything that you believe about today and your future is based on the authenticity of this book. And if this thing's not reliable, we're in big trouble. But just because we're in big trouble if it's not doesn't mean that's the reason to believe it. You believe it because it's right. You believe it because it's true. You believe it because the facts and the evidence overwhelmingly support such a conclusion. The Bible is trustworthy. And in fact, what I want to do is now, see, now we're in a position. Now, all of you who answered last week and used the Bible to support the Bible are in a position where you can actually contribute something positive this week. And that is that, and the reason I say that is very simple. 
Because what you did was you started with the premise that the Bible was accurate and used the Bible to explain the Bible instead of taking the fact of an objective test and saying, okay, now that I know objectively that the Bible is accurate, now I can turn to it and see what the Bible has to say about some of the things that we want to talk about. And that's why you can believe the Bible. Psalm 119 says this. Well, bits and pieces of it, but you want to read a great, a great book, read Psalm 119. Basically, Psalm 119 is God's commentary, God's word on God's word. It's his commentary on the rest of the Bible. And in Psalm 119, we see this. The psalmist writes, My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? You see what he's saying? He's saying this. See, my soul faints within me. Man, I'm going through some tough times and all, all the, you know, and all hell's breaking loose in my life. And I don't know which way to turn. And I'm turning a bunch of different directions. But you know what? But I've decided to do this. I've put my hope in your word. I'm looking for your promise. I want to I I just expand on this for a second because here's what I see happening. Many of us do not wait for God's Word to come to fruition because we're in a big hurry to do what we want to do. See, let me just tell you this. God is never early and He's never late. But He's always on time. And what happens is you deal with people who say, Hey, see, I'm doing such and such and, and it hasn't caught up with me and I don't see any problems in doing it. And as a result, maybe the Bible's not reliable and it's not accurate. It's not trustworthy. Right? See, and, and we live in a society that if we don't see an immediate, immediate response by God to the actions in our life, then we believe that maybe what God is saying is not true. But what the psalmist writes is that, you know what? Hey, I'm looking for and I'm waiting for what you say to come to pass. I believe you. I believe what you say. And I believe it's not always going to happen in my time, but I know it will always happen in your time. So you get somebody who's dating you know, a non-believer. Say, oh, but he's such a nice guy. Oh, this and that and the other. And gee whiz, wonderful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't get married to someone that have, you have no, nothing in common with. You have no spiritual basis because you're going to end up with a lot of trouble and nothing. Oh, but gee, we're getting along so good. And so they get married in three months. They go by and everything's great. And the honeymoon's on in six months and 12 months and maybe a year and two years. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. And it's like, all of a sudden, guess what happens? That point of contention is that they have no, they have no foundation to build upon. And all of a sudden, guess what? God's Word begins to make sense. Oh, what you're saying is right. Oh, man, I got in a situation that never should have happened. Whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in business and whether it's whenever. And we look at God's Word and we say, see, I don't see any immediate results of that. I can get away with it. I can do it. Yeah, God must not be right. Maybe this doesn't really mean what it says. And it's not reliable. It's not trustworthy. But I'll tell you what, with the passage of time, the Word of God always comes true. Always. You're either going to believe it now or you're going to believe it later. Galatians 6, 7 says this, Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And he means it. He means it. When? I don't know when. How? I don't know how. But it's going to happen. You can bank on it. Because this book is reliable and trustworthy. And the psalmist knows that. And that's why I said, you know, look at this. Psalm 119, 85 through 87 says, The arrogant dig pitfalls for me contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They almost wipe me from the earth. But man, I'll tell you what, I have not forsaken your precepts. I'm hanging tough. I'm believing what you say. I don't know when the timing is going to come about, but man, I'm going to trust you. You know why? Because the Word of God says this about the Word of God. That God's commands are trustworthy. And He says, because of that, I have not forsaken your precepts. I don't always understand it. But I know it's true. God, I believe you. I'm just waiting to see how it all falls into place. And see, that affects our decisions today. It affects my decisions right now. God, I don't know how it's all going to turn out. But I know this. If you say it, I believe it. Because your word is reliable. Your word is accurate. 
And so he goes on and he just says, you know, he makes just a couple more mentions about, hey, can you really trust the Word of God? Well, your Word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Psalm 119, 89 and 90. What do we know about the Word of God? What do you know about the Word of God? Hey, don't ever forget this. The Word of God is eternal. Once God said it, once He inked it, it's that way forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't know how long that is, but that's a long time. And you know what's nice about it? He's never going to change His mind. If He said it, He means it. If it's eternal, that means forever. He doesn't change His mind. Now, think about this for a moment. Here's why the Bible becomes relevant to you and me. Because what he said a thousand years ago is still applicable today as it was then. And if it's applicable today, God willing, before he comes back, it'll still be applicable a thousand years from now if history continues to go as it is. The word of God never changes. That's why someone can't say to you, you know what? I don't believe the Bible is relevant. How can it be relevant? I mean, people, I mean, people 1,500 years ago didn't know anything about technology. They didn't know anything about all this stuff. They didn't know anything. Oh, bah, 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 bah. No, he didn't. God did. And so what he said then is applicable today and is applicable tomorrow and is applicable for your kids growing up and will be applicable for their kids growing up and will never change and will always be the same. And he doesn't make special exceptions for you and me based on our feelings or our emotions. If it's right, it's right. As simple as it gets. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. You know who can say this? Older, wiser people who look back on their life and were challenged by making decisions that would have been contrary to what God said was true. There are people who look back and say this, Man, I remember at one point in my life where I wanted to do something, but the Word of God said not to do it. And I decided to believe God and trust God. Thank God I listened to Him. Because if I would have did what I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it really bad, if I would have did that, I'd have been in big trouble. Or, right? You know, hey, I would have been in bad shape. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, believe God because it's trustworthy. And as I look back on my life, I'm glad I believed Him because if I didn't believe Him, I would have been dead meat. I'd have been hurting because I would have done what I wanted to do. Because my emotion said to do one thing, but the Word of God said to do another thing. Now I'm torn between two worlds of doing what feels good or feels right or looks good or thinks good or people tell me to do and books I read tell me to do and all this kind of stuff. And I'm getting all this input and that's the way it says to go. But God says, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to the wisdom of the world because it's foolishness to me. Listen to my word. What I say is right. Ah, oh, man. Glad I listened to him. Glad I listened to him. Now, the question is this. Why should we trust the Bible? You got your Bibles? Let's use them. Turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. What does the Bible say about the Bible? Luke chapter 24. Why should I trust the Bible? Three things we're going to take a look at. One, let's take a look at its identity. How does the Bible identify itself? And there's a little twist in here too that you've got to pick up on because it's really cool. Especially when you're talking to people because it will really flip them out. It's this little, little, little angle here that you can use kind of as a hook to make him realize that, uh-oh, gee, I don't really know much about this book that I keep criticizing and saying I believe. But in Luke chapter 24, how does the Bible identify itself? Luke 24, starting with verse 27. Okay, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them, speaking of, of two disciples on the road to Emmaus, says that at... Uh, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. 
And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go further. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And, and uh, breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You see what Jesus did? What does the Bible call itself? The Word of God. What does Jesus call the Bible, the scriptures? The Word of God. See, you cannot say you believe that Jesus is God in human flesh who died on the cross and shed his blood for your sin and three days later rose again. You cannot believe that he is God and not believe what he says. Because what he's saying is very simple. The testimony of our Lord is very simple that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. He took the scriptures and from Moses and all the prophets he explained to them the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4 and also again in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist had very he had some had serious doubts. He was in prison. He was going through persecution. And his feelings and his emotions were really messing up his, his uh, objectivity in life. He needed a lighthouse to turn to that would lead him to the pro, in the proper direction. And he didn't want to go by his senses because they were all messed up. So he told his disciples to go to Jesus and say to Jesus... Lord, are you the one that we were waiting for, or is there someone else to come? What did Jesus say? What did he tell his disciples to go back and tell John? He said to him very simply that. He said, you go tell John. The blind can see. The lame are made whole. And the dead are raised. What was he telling them? And the gospel was being preached to the poor. What was he telling them? That it was exactly what Moses and the prophets said. That the Messiah would be able to do. And never before in the history of the world had those things been done up to that point. Turn me back to the word of God. And he said, you know, the scriptures say, bang. What did Jesus say to Satan when he was tempted? It is written. It is written. What did he say when he challenged the Pharisees? Have you not read? Have you not heard? Have you not read? What did he say to Nicodemus? Oh, you, a teacher of Israel. You, a teacher of Israel, to teach others. Have you not read? Don't you understand? What does this mean? I seek compassion and not sacrifice. Haven't you read that? Haven't you studied the scriptures? Don't you know what God has to say? The authoritative word of God, its identity is clearly taught throughout all of the Bible 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, or its equivalent is used. The Bible clearly identifies itself as the authoritative word of God. Thus says the Lord. It is the word of God. It is authoritative. It is the final place where we need to turn. Now let me bring up something that's important. Because I mentioned something last week and I want to tie it in together with this. Because it is critical. We have, we have many people who seek professional counseling for help. Some of us have very difficult backgrounds that we're working our way through. The important thing that we need to always keep in focus as we seek human counsel is that the human counsel is based on the authoritative word of God. That is based on the wisdom of God. It is based on the final say of God. And regardless of what any educated human counselor tells us, if it conflicts with the authoritative word of God, then that is foolishness and it isn't going to help you. It's only going to cause you more uh, a discouragement and frustration in your life. Anyone who is counseling anybody about anything better use as your source the Word of God.
And in a couple weeks, I'm going to talk about how you can manipulate the Word of God and how you can abuse the Word of God and how you can cause people some anguish when you do that as well. But you better use as your authoritative basis the Word of God to help people. Because if you don't, you ain't helping anybody. You're going to cause them more turmoil than they're already going through. And if you care, and if you love the person you want to help, then you both better turn to the Word of God and dig into it together. Because I'll tell you what, there's nothing like the Word of God. When the Word of God says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creature, it'll free you up if you learn the truth of what God says about that particular statement. And I don't care what kind of background you come from. I don't care what you've gone through. And, I, you know, I didn't live with Ozzie and Harriet and Dave and Ricky, and I didn't sit around the table, you know, talking with one another at night. So, you know, when I say that, I know what I'm talking about. God can free you from anything if you trust Him and you turn to His Word. Anyway, how about it's inerrancy? And there's three things that we need to understand. It's inerrancy. The Word of God, Jesus said this, You know what? The Word of God is truth. The Word of God is truth. Sanctify them in truth. You know the problem is? We don't know what truth is. I like what one man wrote. James Montgomery Boyce, he wrote this regarding the, 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 the claim of the Scriptures to say that it's truth. Oh, by the way, too, you'll notice that Scriptures is plural. And here's that little twist I want to throw out to you as far as the external evidence. Do you realize you can use the Bible as, external, as an external evidence test? A lot of people look at this and say, well, that's a book, right? You can't use a book to, to validate a book. Ah, you got a problem here because it's scriptures. It's plural. It is a collection of writings. It's 66 books that were written over a 1,500-year period of time. And I can use Isaiah to validate the, book of, the Gospel of Luke. See, I can use Scripture to validate Scripture. And that's why Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. So if it says it within the book, and then it also validates it outside of that particular writing and validates it with other writings, then you can use Scripture as an external evidence test to validate Scripture because it's not one writing. It is a collection of writings. All right? So I just thought I'd throw that in there because it's important to understand that in light of what we've talked about. But inerrancy, well, James Montgomery Boyce says this about truth. He says, we talk about the Word of God as truth, and we're right to do so. But we have to acknowledge when we speak along those lines that the world of our day no longer strictly believes in truth. The great apologists of our time are all saying that. C.S. Lewis said it very well in the opening pages of the screw tape letters where the devil's henchman tempting his patient on earth is advised not to talk to him about truth and falsehood because people don't operate on that basis anymore. But rather talk about what's useful or what's practical. That's the way to get through, says the devil. Francis Schaeffer said the same thing in more philosophical terms. He pointed out quite rightly that today, unlike previous generations, people, though they speak of truth and falsehood, are not speaking of truth in the biblical sense or even in the traditional sense to mean that which is true now and will always be true universally. Rather, they mean that which is true now, but not necessarily true tomorrow or yesterday. Or it's true for me, but not necessarily true for you. In other words, truth for contemporary men and women has become relative. He goes on to say this, but here in the scriptures, we have embodied in the scriptures this particular thing. And that is here the efficacy of the word of God comes in. The fact that God really uses the word to accomplish his purposes, whether men and women believe in the word of truth or not. Jesus said this to his disciples, and he prayed in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Not relativism. Not, it's true for me, but not for you. It's true in this situation, but not in that situation. It's true for me, but not in your case. It's true for them, but not for us. The double standard of truth. No, truth is truth. Truth is the same for you as it is for me. The truth of Scripture is the same for everybody in here collectively. doesn't matter what you're going through. doesn't matter what you're feeling. doesn't matter what your past is. doesn't matter what you want your future to be. Truth is truth. And we need to get back to that because we're so far away from it, we don't understand that anymore. We don't understand what's right and wrong. What's right for you is right for me. What's wrong for you is wrong for me. According to what God says, truth is truth. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. Not just the truth for me, but the truth for the world. Do you follow how serious this is and what a problem that it is? Because I know people who can distort things. Well, man, it's, oh, it's true in this case, but not in that case. Well, it's true if no one gets hurt, but it isn't true if people are going to be offended by it. 
Well, it's true. Maybe it isn't true. Maybe it is true. I don't know what's true anymore, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. You know what? That doesn't free anybody up. That puts us more and more in bondage. The truth will set you free. You want to be freed up from stuff? Then believe what he says is true. It is eternally true. It is eternally right. It is eternally wrong. And God doesn't change his mind. The word of God is eternal. Inerrancy. It's not wrong. It is 100% correct. It is not wrong. It's not wrong. And those three terms, you got to might as well, you know, relegate them to memory. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. You get your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We'll kind of put it all together on this. Inerrancy. What has been written in its original autographs is right for all of eternity. Inerrancy. It is not wrong. It is not incorrect. It is right. Revelation. Revelation. How God, quote, revealed himself to us. Revelation. How does God reveal Himself? He reveals Himself through nature. Psalm 8 says that, you know, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Romans chapter 1. In all creation, we see the evidence of God. God has revealed Himself. He revealed Himself through miracles. He reveals Himself through, um, He revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. And the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He reveals Himself through the Bible, 1 John chapter 5, 9 through 13. And this is the witness that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What? These things I have written to you, put down in writing, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Word of God is authoritative. God reveals Himself to us in many ways. But in the final days, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, He reveals Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. The final revelation to all mankind. Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That's it. No more revelations. No more pepperoni pizza dreams at night saying God spoke to me. He didn't speak to you unless He does it through here. Save yourself some aggravation. Inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's look at it and put it all together. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the inspiration of God. The inspiration of the Word of God. Talking to Timothy, he says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures, that which was put down in writing for our purposes. The rule book for all of life. Why do we send missionaries all over the world? Because it is the rule book for all of life. In this book is written the words of life. In this book you can find the destiny of all mankind. In this book, you can find how we're to live on a day-to-day -day basis and interact with one another. In this book, we see of God's great love in Jesus Christ. In this book, we read of His death on the cross and redemption for our sins. In this book, we see about the resurrection from the dead and the fact that He's raised from the dead and can forgive you from sin. In this book are the words of life. Why do you send people? Why do we send people? Why do we spend money? That's why, because people need to know this. Why do we want it in their own writing? So they can read it and see it for themselves. And that has a lot to do with what we're talking about, inspiration. And that from the childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says this, all scripture is inspired, God breathed, inspired by God and profitable. An accounting term meaning, guess what? You will never waste your time ever, folks, picking up the Bible and reading it. It is profitable. It will always give you a positive bottom line. Profitable for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for chaining in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of God is profitable, was breathed by God, inspired by God, and no man sat down by an act of will and wrote this out. God moved them through the Holy Spirit, which has to do with, with uh, revelation, inspiration, and illumination is this. When you read the word of God, and the spirit of God, John chapter 16, guide you into truth and you're offended because you're not living up to what God wants of your life that's illumination and what you got to be careful is when you hear a speaker who offends you be careful that it's not the speaker who is offending you but the spirit of God who illuminates truth and convicts us of sin and judgment righteousness that we need to change some areas of our life it's a lot easier to take it out on an individual than it is to have to deal with God. 
Now, it doesn't say that I don't offend people and that maybe, you know, I have to continue to, you know, examine myself to make sure that my motives are right and what I say isn't attacking and things like that. And that's my problem. But what you need to deal with is don't concentrate so much on that that you don't allow God to illuminate His truth in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the direction that you're going. That's something that you need to deal with. That's something that I need to deal with. That's something we all need to deal with. Inspiration of God. God breathed. God breathed. Revelation, inspiration, and illumination. And the last thing, read for yourself Psalm 119. We don't have time. Psalm 119, 98 through 100. And you'll see some benefits of relying upon the Word of God. Psalm 119, 98 through 100. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that it passes the tests that are used of secular writings as well as religious writings. God, we just thank you that um, because of this information that we'll be able to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our heart, always being able to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. God, I just pray that more of us will be more actively involved in reaching people around us to tell them how much you love them, to tell them what you've done for them in the person of Jesus Christ. And to be able to share articulately why we believe what we believe. We thank you that your word is eternal, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy for all situations in life. That you tell us that everything else in this world will pass away, but the word of God and the souls of men and women. God, we just thank you for your truth. And you tell us very simply that your word is truth, and that the truth will set us free. God, give us the strength and the courage of conviction to believe what you say. Illuminate your truth through your spirit who lives within us. Guide us into truth. If there's areas that we need to repent and change and turn from, may we see clearly that that's the case. May we be willing to obey at all costs. God, we just thank you that you want what's best for us, that you've taken the time to give us your word, and that it is reliable, that it is trustworthy, and it is a crutch that we can rely on that will never fail us. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name.